Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to episode 27 of the Trainer's Bullpen, enhancing motor learning with the Challenge Point Framework. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Logan Markwell, human factor scientist and motor behavior expert, to discuss the challenge point framework and why coaches and trainers should understand and apply this framework in the design and delivery of motor skills training. In this interview, you will learn about nominal versus functional task difficulty, the role of variability and contextual interference in motor learning, how to appropriately balance performer capability with task difficulty, the difference between performance and learning and why coaches and trainers so often get this wrong, the importance of offline learning and instructor feedback, as well as several other nuggets of evidence-led training wisdom. An exciting bonus in this interview is that it rounds out with asking Dr. Markwell questions about his motor learning Myth Bust Monday Instagram posts. You'll be fascinated to hear long-held motor learning myths busted. I hope you can hear some of those golden idols of traditional law enforcement training crashing to the ground. If you're not following Logan on Instagram, you'll want to be sure to do so. And just as a reminder, research related to the Challenge Point framework is appended to the show notes and free to download over at the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.com. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Logan Markwell. Logan is currently an applied scientist of human factors and user experience for an extended reality company and a visiting research scientist at a university in Poland with over seven years of motor behavior research experience at several research institutions. He holds a PhD in motor behavior from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and in May of 2023, Logan successfully defended his PhD dissertation, which investigated the effects of extended motor skill practice in immersive environments from a behavioral, neurophysiological, and psychological perspective. His current research investigates how various factors such as instruction, feedback, attention, technology, practice design, heat stress, fatigue, and human factors influence human, human learning and performance. Logan is passionate about how we learn, perform, and excel, and he's particularly eager to provide high-quality research methods and effectively communicate the findings to industries seeking to understand how and why people act with technology and products. Logan, thanks for making the time to join us today on the Trainer's Bullpen. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so uh, just a bit of background for our listeners here. You and I uh, connected as it happens on Instagram. I was following your posts, you know, stalking you perhaps on social media because your background as a motor learning uh, researcher and expert certainly uh, was important to me when we look at 
how we design and implement training, motor learning, motor skill training for law enforcement to optimize our officers' performance. And so many of the things that you spoke about in your post or in your posts really resonated with me, Logan. But one of those or a couple of your posts, you spoke about something that was really unfamiliar uh, to mm -hmm. me, which was awesome because it caused me to spend now several months diving into this issue, which is something called the challenge point framework that you made mention of in your post. So um, Logan, why don't we start with just, well, what is what in the world is a challenge point framework? Yeah. So in, in short, uh, the challenge point framework is this idea where there's a, an optimal level or, you know, in quotes, an optimal level of difficulty that will maximize our learning potential. Um, now there's there's a lot more to it than just that, but it's it's really just kind of this sweet spot, um, this point, uh, or really better, I think, visualized or imaged as a zone, um, kind of like a bandwidth of this level of difficulty where we should be practicing or training in order to maximize how much we're going to gain from that practice session um, or over the course of multiple practice sessions, and so. Um, this was a framework specifically published for motor skills, um, Guadagnoli and Lee in 2004, um, the challenge point hypothesis. Um, and there's really, in, in the original framework, um, there are really three points to it or three principles. And one is that it, it assumes that new information is needed for improvement, which is this idea of like the challenge, like training at a level of difficulty, exposing new information in the environment, um, you know, whether that's different constraints or just different types of design of practice or so on, uh, in order for continuous improvement or for improvement within that session. The second point is that an optimal level of difficulty or a, or a certain level of difficulty is required for this new information. So if we're always practicing in the same environment, we're not going to be getting this new information, this uncertainty, this novelty, whatever that may be. Um, and then the third point is that the challenge point or this challenge zone is dependent on the skill level of the learner. And so everybody has their own unique challenge point for their own skill. Whatever the skill that is, uh, my challenge point is going to be a certain point. And so those were the really kind of the three underlying principles um, in the original challenge point hypothesis that was published. And then just within the last couple of years, I think two, 2022, um, Nikki Hodges and Keith Loesch published an extended challenge point framework. And I really liked their article um, because it was not an experiment. It was just a, a review of this and kind of an update on the framework. But I really liked it, one, because I think Hodges, um, she's a very active researcher in the in the motor behavior space, and I really, really enjoy um, her writing. I think she's a fantastic writer. She she does a great job of taking complex ideas and being able to make them digestible, but not oversimplifying. Um, but from a framework perspective, I think they made it much more uh, digestible and applicable. And so one, they kind of restated 
those ideas and principles. And, you know, anytime that you can receive the same type of information, but in a different way, kind of a Bernstein thought, like repetition without repetition, it's always a good thing, right? Like just hearing it in a different way. But they extended it by adding really three additional components, two main ones, and then a third, which is they added a motivation element, um, highlighting the fact that there's this trade-off between difficulty and motivation. If we're going to practice at such a high level of difficulty, that is likely going to come at the cost of motivation. And so we're, over time, whether it's long-term or with an immediate practice session, we're likely going to become just kind of down um, or disappointed or unmotivated or unengaged um, due to the level of difficulty and um, just repeated failure, right? Um, and so there's a motivational cost. But then they also added a component, which I thought was very valuable, in that the original challenge point didn't uh, distinguish between types of difficulty, but not all difficulty are created equal. Um, and difficulty for the sake of difficulty is not helpful for learning. Um, it's it's specificity or or just the like another word like desirable difficulty is is what's valuable there. And so they added a specificity component. So both a motivation and a specificity component being that these difficulties or the challenge that we're going up against should look like or represent or mimic what we're training for. And so not just difficult for the sake of difficult, but a very specific type of difficulty or representative difficulty. And then the third component of that was that this challenge point is dynamic and it's changing. And so this means that it's it's going to change for the individual, but also at the team level um, or at the group level if you're training within a, a group. And so this can be thought of both in the short term, we, we may have a specific challenge point that we're up against, a specific level of difficulty that's going to help maximize our learning potential at an individual training session. So today, when I go train a skill, um, there's going to be this specific level, but then also over time. And so big picture. And so kind of like micro and macro um, or like um, thinking about it in like strength and conditioning um, like a strength and conditioning perspective, like a, a, a macro cycle, a meso cycle, and a micro cycle, thinking about it from like over time, uh, what should my, like how difficult should I be training? Um, but then also being able to specialize within that individual, um, uh, just that individual practice session. And so for me, I really enjoy this and I, I apply it to myself when I'm learning a new skill or working on a skill. I will, you know, over, I'm just going to take like a high level picture of like over this month, this is going to, this is what I'm working on. You know, maybe I'm learning, trying to teach myself a new software because um, I'll apply this to other skills besides just motor skills. Um, or I was recently applying this to, um, I, I came from a powerlifting background, um, not a Olympic weightlifting background. Um, but I've been learning Olympic weightlifts or practicing. So I've been working on cleaning and snatching. And so I'll look over the course of the month, how many days do I want to practice in like a difficult way um, for my training? But then in that specific moment, in that single practice session, you know, maybe I'm not feeling that motivated. And so I'll kind of modify or change that. But so in short, 
the challenge point hypothesis or the challenge point framework can really just overlay any type of training or practice or if you're trying to, to learn a skill or relearn a skill or improve a skill, you can overlay this framework and view it through this lens, simply being that there is an adequate or an optimal level of difficulty that's gonna help maximize how much you are capable of learning. And, you know, we we see this, uh, we this isn't necessarily unique or new. We see this across multiple different types of bodies of research. And so education has previous theories. This this was kind of derived from this, this concept, desirable difficulties, which stemmed from traditional educational research or learning and memory research. Um, we also see it from like cognitive load theory is, is another similar idea. Um, stemming similarly from education and learning and memory research. Um, then there's also the zone of proximal development, which is really coming out of like speech development related research. And then there's the parallel development hypothesis, which is uh, mainly focused on motor skills. But all of these are essentially just practicing or training outside of that comfort zone in order to maximize how much you're going to be able to learn. Okay. Well, that's an excellent overview of that. So I have some follow-up questions that came to me as I was jotting down some notes when you're talking there. So the, the, this challenge point then, you mentioned a band of optimal uh, challenge. And so how are we, are, are we talking about, like, is this a point of near failure, a point of past failure? Like how, where is the optimal challenge point for, for me individually, personally, how would I know when I'm in that sweet spot of optimal performance in that challenge point? Well, it's, it's, it's certainly, there, there hasn't been enough work. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic for the future of being able to build, um, not necessarily myself, but just being able to uh, really quantify what this like zone can look like. And there's been some attempts at it. Um, you know, there's been some um, like, computer simulated work of trying to look at like what percentage um, of success or failure rate is optimal for learning. Um, and what you really see from that work, um, as well as some uh, physical education work, is this zone somewhere between 65 to 70% all the way up to 85% successful. Um, now, of course, uh, this highly depends on the skill, right? Because uh, in in the context of Major League Baseball, batting averages, um, if you're not going to see 85% success rates um, for a batter, right? You know, 30% success rates is okay. It's it's decent. And so um, like the the level or the specific percentage is going to be highly dependent on the skill um, or, or the task. But really what you can be looking for are the characteristics. Uh, and this is going to be, one, it's going to feel uncomfortable. Um, it, you, you, you know, you kind of know when you're outside of that comfort zone. Um, and it's going to be flagged with failure. You, you are going to fail, and that's okay. Um, that's, that is the point. And if you are always successful, you're not going to learn as much as you could. Uh, and so 
it's it, it is going to be flagged with failure. It is going to feel uncomfortable. It may not be fun, um, but it does not mean it's not going to feel rewarding um, uh, or or satisfying. Um, and so it's it, I can more better define it by like descriptors or the characteristics rather than give you like a specific range, um, just because it's it is going to be more specific to the task or 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 the scenario that you're training for. But um, but flagged with failure is really the first key um, thing that you want to be considering when when looking for this. Um, but of course, not too much because that's where the motivational cost comes in. Right. Okay. So I'm thinking of, say, for example, firearms training with law enforcement officers where, I mean, obviously on the street operationally, we want officers to be extremely accurate and quick and good decision makers with their firearm. And so then in the training environment, I think part of our challenge is, is that our training environment is so non-reflective, Logan, of the criterion environment that we push for almost a zone of comfort in firearms training because we focus so much on perfection of technique rather than and so then what happens is are we have officers who find themselves in a rapidly unfolding high consequence officer involved shooting and perform terribly and so i'm wondering if 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 that is largely due to the fact that we haven't understood exactly what you're talking about here which is scaffolding the training as much as we can to keep them in that zone of the optimal challenge point during firearms training. And yes, even at, at the expense of having them make mistakes and and learn in that band, what, what is, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So if, you know, if, if I'm looking at it from myself or when I'm training or working with somebody else and helping with their training that I really use this just to kind of overlay, you know, are, are they achieving certain levels of specificity or representativeness? Does it mimic what it's going to be looking like in the field um, where it matters? Because training in the classroom or, or in the simulation lab um, or just in your, um, you know, wh- wherever that may be in that environment, the performance in that environment is not what matters. Performance or how well that transfers outside to the real world or that real environment is completely what matters. And in your case, you know, in a law enforcement uh, example, like the stakes are so much higher. And so the quality of that training environment matters all much more because it's, you're not going to strike out uh, lives or arts, right? And so, um, you know, kind of worst case scenario. And so, yes, being able to maximize that level of difficulty in the training environment, being able to maximize that level of specificity in the training environment is going to completely, um, it, it, it is it is incredibly valuable to make sure that those are being accomplished in the training environment um, so that it is going to transfer to the real thing. Because at the end of the day, that's the name of the game of practice, right? Is, does it transfer? Is it helping you outside of the classroom into the real world environment. And if it's not, or if it's not as much as it could, why not? And how can we make that more effective? Right. Okay. So um, one of the, the things that you just mentioned there, this idea of transfer, and I think maybe now's a good time to 
to talk about this, this distinction between performance and learning, because I, for many years, made the critical mistake of seeing my officer's performance during the training event as an indicator that they had learned. And then I've since come to realize that those are two very distinct things, but I don't think most trainers appreciate the difference and how that relates to this whole idea of challenge point framework. So can you talk to us about performance versus learning and what's the distinction? Yeah, I, I think this is incredibly valuable um, for any type of practitioner with a training element um, and, and learner, whether like, you know, you don't have to be teaching these things. You can also just be wanting to learn these things. Um, and the distinguishing between practice and learning is not unique to the challenge point, though the challenge point does talk about it. Um, it's seen a, a lot throughout the motor learning literature um, and other bodies of work, um, including like education and, and memory. Um, but the distinguish is that the way they define uh, the way that like performance and learning have been defined is really performance is immediate performance. It's how you're performing during practice or that specific day or that acquisition period. And so that's your short-term performance or immediate performance. And then learning is simply a measurement of long-term performance or how you're going to perform tomorrow or the next day or in a week from now. It's, it's how it's your performance at the end of an acquisition period or a practice period or learning period, those are all kind of synonymous. And so performance can be thought of as immediate performance, how I'm performing in this specific training session. Learning is my performance measured after my training session ends, whether that's tomorrow or in a week from now or in a month from now or so on. And the way that it's typically measured in a like in the literature is either a retention test or a transfer test. And these are usually measured at least 24 hours after an acquisition period has ended, um, just to let people sleep and then come perform and see, you know, how what what's their how how is their performance changed before they practiced and after they practiced. Um, but not during practice, because those factors, there's many factors, including just repetitions, performing trials are going to influence our performance of the next trial. And so being able to measure performance at the end of a practice period, the next day or in a week um, from when practice ends is a uh, is just a very valuable way to assess how well are we actually progressing. And so what I like to do with myself and people that I work with or groups is, um, you know, if you, if you look at like a, the snippet, like the first snippet of your, um, uh, of your practice session and look at how you're performing then, that essentially acts as a retention test or a measure of retention because it's going to be the first several repetitions of, of your performance for that day, which is kind of acting as a, as, as a measure of retention. Um, and that is a much better indicator of how you're performing from day to day than just looking at any given spot um, throughout a practice session or any given level of performance throughout a practice session. Okay. I think that's really insightful because uh, so for example, 
We will often have annual or, or maybe even more frequently, several times a year, officers will come in for firearms training or they'll come in for defensive tactics, control tactics training. And one thing that uh, we often see is at the very beginning, so it may have been several months before they've uh, practiced a skill and now they come in and it's just horrible at the very beginning. Like it's, they, it's like they've never learned it. And so what you're telling us then is really what we're seeing at the beginning of that training session is indicative of how they would actually perform on the street. So it's not their improvement of performance at, over this training event that's going to tell me how they're going to perform. It's that early period at the very beginning of training. Yes, or at least closer to how they are throughout the entire duration of that uh, of that assessment or, or that test. Now, I will add a caveat to that. A, a transfer test is really a better indicator of how they're going to be performing in you know, in their applied context, which because a transfer test is assessing how well they're able to adapt to novel scenarios or a slightly different task or in a slight, not so slightly different environment. Um, and so that would be a better indicator. So if they're in a simulation, um, that first, you know, the first few attempts going through that simulation uh, that's representing what's going on in the real world, I would predict would be a much better indicator of how they really are going to be performing than the cumulative performance in that baseline or that assessment day. Um, and th there was actually a, uh, there, there haven't been a whole lot of studies looking uh, at this one thing specifically, but there was this one that I was really fascinated in. It was uh, conducted quite a while ago, and I believe it was division one basketball players and they were looking at free throw performance um, in games and in practice. And uh, in just looking at the difference in performance in game and in practice. And in practice, their free throw percentage was much higher than in the game. Um, so that an indicator that their practice performance was not a great predictor of their in-game performance um, because it was much higher. But their first two free throws in practice was not any different than their free throw percentage in game performance. So their first two free throws in practice, which were highly specific to the game-like environment. So if you think about it from like a challenge point perspective, it's right when they're coming in, they haven't had a lot of warmups or you know tra trials before that to inflate their performance. It's highly specific to what they're facing in the game. So it's only two, just like they would experience in the game. And those were not any different than the in-game performance. And so I think that that's, it's, it's similar to what you're talking about, where when they come back after so many months or weeks or, or years, and they perform um, you know, this, this training or assessment, those first few um, scenarios or those first few trials um, are likely more representative um, than, uh, yeah, the, the middle pack or the end um, of, of that training day. Okay. Well, I'll have more to ask on that in a few minutes because I've got all kinds of thoughts running through my mind as a trainer on how you could use that to help demonstrate 
maybe a need for learning and motivating your students at the beginning of training. But uh, I'll park that for now because I want to get back a little bit into the challenge point framework um, talking about. So one of the things that as I read through the papers and uh, Logan, the one that you mentioned, I think by Hodges is called an extended challenge based framework for practice design in sports coaching which was published in the Journal of Sports Sciences. And for our listeners, we'll have a copy of that paper that Logan mentioned appended to the show notes. So I'd encourage you to take a look at that. But one of the things in reading through a lot of the research about the challenge point framework is they tie together these concepts of practice variability and contextual interference, two very interesting concepts, I think. So why don't we start with practice variability? Uh, Logan, why is that so important to the challenge point framework and motor learning? So the the way that they related those to the challenge point framework was a, a way to um, influence the level of difficulty. Specifically, they break down, they, they, break down this idea of nominal difficulty or nominal task difficulty and functional task difficulty. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tie it back into practice variability um, and, and contextual interference. But so nominal task difficulty is just this absolute level of difficulty, regardless of the person. So if, if you're shooting, um, you know, if you're shooting a rifle from 50 yards away, right? It's going to be a, you know, it's it's going to be twice as difficult as shooting a rifle from 25 yards away at, at the same size target, assuming our target is the same size. Um, but that difficulty, regardless of you or me, is the same. And so I've I grew up with firearms and I grew up shooting, but I guarantee you have way more experience shooting a firearm than I do um, because I'm not that experienced at it. Uh, it doesn't matter how many times that we've both shot that type of firearm, that nominal level of difficulty is the same for both of us. But functional task difficulty is the level of difficulty on the skill or, or dependent on the, on the skill level of the individual. And so for me, that shot is going to be more difficult. It's gonna have a higher level of functional task difficulty than for you, because I'm assuming that you're more experienced shooting that type of firearm at that distance, if that makes sense. So that that functional task difficulty is dependent on the individual. It's just an individualized level of difficulty. Nominal is constant regardless of the individual or their skill level. And so the way they needed factors that influence level of difficulty of the task. And in at this point, when the challenge point was originally published in 2004, um, the, they, they were taking these concepts um, that had been well studied for decades prior to that, that were known to influence level of difficulty um, for the learner. And so practice variability and contextual interference were, were two of those. And so practice variability is this idea of it's and it's also it's also used as contextual interference within. So it's within a task. Those two are really kind of the same thing. And so practice variability is simply adding a slight variation either to the task or the environment um, of that of that specific task. So if you're shooting a firearm 
um, moving your distance from how far away that you're shooting at a target, you're adding variations to that task or to your practice. And so traditionally, it would be, let's say you're, let's say you're shooting from three different distances. Um, let's say it's 20 yards, 30 yards, and 40 yards. And the, the way it was kind of traditionally examined was a varied design of practice in a constant design of practice. And so a constant design of practice would be you shooting five rounds from 20 yards, you shooting five rounds from 30 yards, and you shooting five rounds from 40 yards. A varied style of practice um, or design would be in a random order, you're going to shoot five times from each location, but you're going to have one from 40 yards, then 20 yards, then 30 yards, then 20 yards, and 40 yards. And it's still going to be the same. It's going to be five at each, um, but in a varied order. And so what we see is that when you increase the variability in a skill, and this is kind of general, um, so I'm kind of generalizing here, but what you typically see is higher levels of variability, of practice variability, is going to decrease immediate performance. So it's going to have a negative effect on our immediate performance because it's more difficult, but it's going to have a beneficial effect on learning. And so we have it benefits on learning, but detriments on immediate performance, which is why it's important to be able to separate performance and learning, because that is a factor that influences our performance and learning differently. It minimizes performance, but boosts learning. And so that's practice variability is just adding a slight variation or a larger, you know, it doesn't have to be a slight variation, it can be a larger variation to that single task. You're not changing tasks. Contextual interference is similar, um, except it's it was traditionally examined by multiple tasks. So if you're going to shoot a, um, a, let's say, a pistol and a rifle, so you're shooting two different guns, they're two different types of skills, you're going to be intermixing those two. And so you could do 15 shots with the pistol and then 15 shots with the rifle, or you can add interference. Um, and so in a, a random order, you're just randomly shooting the rifle and then the pistol, maybe a couple times with the rifle. So it'll be the same amount, but just greater levels of interference um, are, are going to occur when you're just switching tasks, if that makes sense. And so the simil similar findings have been shown with, with that body of work as well. And that is with greater levels of interference, when you're task switching more, uh, you see decreases in performance immediately, but benefits in retention and transfer or, or learning. Um, and so that was one kind of uh, just method as, as how they modified um, and uh, yeah, it's just how they modified the level of difficulty um, and kind of based, based uh, the challenge point on some of that empirical evidence, just kind of highlighting the fact that how, how these factors influence our immediate performance and our learning uh, effects differently um, and higher levels of difficulty are, have a negative effect on our immediate performance, but a positive effect on our long-term performance or learning. Okay. So again, counterintuitive, I think for many of us, Logan, because um, 
So if I'm training officers in, a, say, a shooting task or in, in defensive tactics, ground fighting or something like that, and I add variability and I add contextual interference and I see that decrease in performance, then, you know, because I think many trainers would look at that and they'd go, oh, I'm adding on, I've now we've got a decrease in performance. I need to pull back so that we don't have those mistakes, those errors. But what I'm hearing you say is that actually may be exactly where the learner needs to be is in that error space for actual learning to take place. Have I, have I interpreted that correctly? Correct. And not only, not only could the trainer perceive that, but the learner tends to perceive that as well. And we have data showing that, that the learner tends to feel less confident about themselves or think that they're learning worse when they're practicing with higher levels of contextual interference compared to the learner that's practicing under blocked or just repetition after repetition, um, they think that they're performing better. But when they're tested, it flips. And so they actually overestimate how well they're learning when, when, we're, when we're basing those performance off of how well they think that they're learning. So when I blocked style of practice where it's just repetition after repetition, they tend to overestimate and they're overconfident about how well they, they actually are learning um, and their judgment of how they're learning is worse compared to the person practicing in more difficult designs of practice with high contextual interference. So it's true for both the trainer, perhaps I don't, I, I haven't actually seen data on the trainer's perceptions, but I, there is quite a bit of data on the learner's perceptions of that or judgments of that. Um, and that's typically what you see. I would expect it to be the same with the trainer, which is why it is important not necessarily to be basing your practice design off of immediate performance in that given day. Okay. All right. And so that leads naturally, I think, then into the next topic. And you kind of touched on this a little bit already. You you spoke about a retention period. You said usually at least 24 hours to allow for sleep were your words. And so, you know, what that uh, struck me is this idea of something called offline learning, which is something I never knew in, in most of my years as a trainer, uh, this idea that learning can occur or not can occur primarily does occur offline. So like what in the world's going on there? How is it possible that people can actually, the learning takes place after the training event? Yeah. So uh, there's, yeah. And this, this stems from research, both like, like neuroscience related research and also like cognitive psychology or cognitive science related research. Um, they, they sometimes use the terms offline gains and online gains. Um, and, and as you mentioned, offline gains are simply improvements made um, when they're not practicing. So between practice sessions or between testing periods. So there hasn't been any practice that has occurred, but if I, if I pre-test you and post-test you, there's a benefit or there's a gain between pre and post. Um, and the short answer is as to why that's taking place. Um, there isn't a definitive answer as to why that's taking place. I think the best explanation is uh, like memory consolidation. Um, so as we sleep, we're consolidating uh, our, our, our memory and um, I think that that's I think that's one of the best explanations that that um, 
that explains that. Um, but again, it's it's not it's not definitive. Um, but but we do see that, and when we practice um, specifically, and when we practice uh, um, with high levels of difficulty, kind of based on that challenge point framework, um, there just because you're practicing poorly or your performance is poor today does not mean that it is not going to improve tomorrow, even without additional practice. Um, and if you're practicing effectively, it likely will. Um, and that's that's the idea of offline gains um, compared to online gains, which are improvements during practice for that acquisition period. Um, and so that's where you're just measuring how somebody's performing. Uh, are you still there? I lost you for yeah. a second. Okay, I, I am still there. I great, am still there. Great. Okay, so I get if if they don't completely understand the process of what's going on, um, but I think from what you're saying, the research would show the evidence is that it actually very strongly does occur. This offline uh, learning taking place and primarily during sleep. So what then, like as a as a trainer. Uh, is there a particular place in my training day? Like if I'm doing multiple different types of shooting exercises or control tactics training, is there a way that I should think about offline learning as far as how do I schedule my motor learning that I'm doing that day? Is there, does that impact scheduling and design? Um, well, scheduling and design is going to impact offline gains. Uh, and so practicing with higher levels of variability or, or just higher levels of difficulty, proper difficulty and higher levels of specificity will likely impact offline gains. As far as, um, you know, doing it throughout, there's been, there's been also a bit of work looking at like how much can we practice and continue to benefit before there's like diminishing returns. And, you know, there's, there's a limit to, to how much. It's it's difficult to quantify like for um, like and in, in be able to generalize that across all tasks, um, but but there there will be a limit, and I think that you know the the best way to understand it is just being able to do your own in house testing, and it does not need to be complicated or time consuming. You're going to be looking at performance likely anyway during practice. And so just being able to assess, you know, if if you're having people train in the mornings or you're having people train in the evenings, um, thing like things like that, like you can you can assess that in house and see, you know, is this influencing um, just kind of that first session or that retention session um, as, as people as people are performing. Um, but uh, but, you know, like sleep is going to affect it. Um, and, and that just kind of follows a line with like kind of the, the, the standard, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep, um, less than that. And you will start to see, um, like a, an effect on, on learning or offline gains. Um, but again, that has less to do with the training design and, and more to do with just behavioral aspects of that. But, but the, the big point to, that, to take away there is that, the training design is what is going to influence the offline gains. Um, and, and that's 
business. That should be one of the most important factors to consider um, just from a training perspective or from somebody directing trainings um, is how are they practicing and how can we, you know, maximize the amount of offline gains or just learning that's taking place um, uh, from session to session. But, um, you know, really over the course of, you know, any specific training period. Okay, great. And you'd mentioned earlier, Logan, the idea of learner motivation or our students' motivation and its impact on learning. And so what I'm struggling with as a trainer is, so if I understand the challenge point framework correctly and the need to keep them in that zone of, as you said earlier, desirable difficulties and that percentage of failure versus success rate, how do I balance that with my learner's motivation so that I don't I don't crush their motivation and and keep keep them engaged in the in the learning and be successful. How how do how can I understand that? Yeah, I think that's the um you know that's one of the uh that's just one of the values that a good trainer can provide is understanding what that balance is for their their groups, their trainees, whoever it is that they're working with. And um that, you know, I don't necessarily have a specific recommendation there, um, but noting that one, just because they are not motivated does not necessarily mean they cannot learn. And so sometimes we can become motivated in the process of practicing and just performing. There's plenty of times where, you know, you can, you work your way into becoming motivated. Um and so just because they're not necessarily motivated does not mean that there's no there, there's no learning potential there. Um, but it does tend to be beneficial. And so I think one of those is simply just reframing how the 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 style of training, you know, the idea that you know Culturally, and, th and this may, th I think this kind of depends on the culture of it's built um, with whatever, uh, you know, training environment that you're in. Um, but like failing is, you know, failing was kind of always a, a, a negative, um, like in the, in the training circles that I was in um, and just kind of re reframing that as a, as a beneficial thing, you know, like you're likely going to be gaining more from failing than always succeeding and being able to really reframe that is going to be beneficial for motivation. Um, I, I'm going to be, my, my motivation is going to be less negatively impacted if I know that failing is okay and that it's a good thing and it's a part of the process. And then I'm, and then I'm learning more from it. I'm assuming that it's, you know, desirable difficulties and not just difficulties for the sake of difficulty. Um, or failing for the sake of failing, you know? Um, but training should be ugly. Like that's, and that's okay. Um, the other thing is, you know, there are other tactics and and that's actually mentioned in this article, like um, strategies to try to mitigate um, decreases in motivation, like autonomy or, or just trying to increase levels of competence to where they're not really feeling down um, or over-controlled being able to give them some choice in their own training will help mitigate um, just or, or, or help increase levels of comp competence um, and likely motivation as, as they are practicing. And so 
those are some those are some strategies to use, just kind of reframing that and giving some choice in the actual practice session um, that can help mitigate that. But then it's also okay, um, you know, that in, in the strength and conditioning world, they use the phrase like a deload, like, like a deload week or a deload training session where, you know, you're building up, you're building up, it's difficult, it's difficult. Now we're going to deload and let your body rest and recover. You're still performing your same activities that you normally would, but you're not pushing it outside of that comfort zone. And I think you can view learning or skill acquisition in a similar light where you're periodizing, you're going to have a hard push. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're not, it may not be that motivated. It may not all be that fun, but it likely is going to be effective and satisfying. And then we're going to rest or, or, or bring it back a notch and tone it down and almost deload. And that can happen either in a, you know, over like the long term, over like a the course of a week, you know, maybe next week after four weeks of hard training, we're going to pull it back. Or it could happen in that single training session. You know, you, you're you working with an individual, you know, they're in the right place. Um, they're not really there. They're highly unmotivated. Okay, let's bring it back. Let's bring them back. Let's have them do some things that they're good at. And just kind of the, the reinforcement style of practice that um, is talked about in that in that framework. Um, and so that, you know, all of that depends on the individual. Um, and that's, um, I think that's partly what separates like the, the good trainers from the greats are the, it is just being able to see when, when it's time to scale it back, um, or maybe implement some strategies to try to reinforce some motivation there. But also at the end of the day, motivation is not the name of the game. Um, it, effective practices and being able to transfer out. So just because somebody is not completely motivated does not mean learning cannot occur, though I wouldn't want to recommend that repeatedly over and over again um, for for the long term, if that, that makes sense. Right, sure. And so I suppose on the other end, so you spoke about training that is like, oh, like where our students are really struggling and, and making mistakes. And so if we're not careful there, they can lose motivation just by basically crushing the motivation out of them with too much difficulty. But on the other end, if training is just too easy and they're just constantly not being pushed, I imagine motivation can get lost pretty early on on that end as well. Yeah, completely. And and this is something that um, is discussed in the article, but it was also just um, observed well is like video games do a really good job of this, of, of being able to, uh, just adapt the, the scenario or adapt the, um, scene, um, uh, or the campaign so that it's not too easy for the individual. So they lose interest and it's, it, yeah, it's too easy and they're not willing to engage with it or practice. Um, but that it's not too difficult so that they're always getting crushed by it and never successful. And so that's just that idea of that zone, that optimal level of difficulty zone where you want to be in this in this zone where it's difficult enough that people are coming back, they're engaged and they are motivated, but it's not too difficult that it's completely crushing them. Um, and um, yeah, either either physically, um, you know, increasing their risk of, of injury or just psychologically kind of deflating um, their their motivation. 
Okay. Logan, we often put officers through what we call high fidelity scenarios, which are we try to make them as realistic to the criterion environment as possible with a lot of contextual interference and variability. And the closer we get to reality in those scenarios, often just simply the more errors officers make, errors in perception, in judgment, decisions, motor skill performance. Would your recommendation be like, should if I have officers for an eight hour day, Logan, should I end the day on a success for them? Like I always hated having an officer go through a scenario at the end of the day. And if they made a, it made some very critical performance errors, sending them away and letting them stew in their own juices without having them have a success at, at the end, like, am I on to something there? I haven't seen any research that would say, you know, end on a success, but just kind of intuitively, I always felt that was the right thing to do. You know, to be honest, I'm not aware of any data um, to to support that idea um, or or any studies that have really looked at that. It, there could be, um, but I don't know. Um, but I think it's a good, you know, in without knowing what that data looked like, I would do the same thing. And that would be my recommendation kind of based off what I know. But also, um, I think that there is some um, intuition there. It's similar to, uh, you know, not uh, similar to having a conversation and and not wanting to say everything that could possibly be said and leaving some words on the table, um, kind of not necessarily ending on a high note, but, um, you know, I think there's something to be said for not ending with motivation completely low or at, 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 a, at a very low point, because you the, there is data to suggest that low levels of motivation will just hinder uh like just practice like they're they're engaging in practice and so that's one of the indirect effects of low motivation on learning um is they'll just stop practicing or training and so i think there's some like i think that's just that could be an effective strategy for um yeah for keeping keeping motivation at a moderate you know not it doesn't necessarily have to be high but at a moderate level so that they that they're willing at least to come back to the next time um because at the end of the day if they're not training or not practicing then they're they're not going to they're not going to learn and so that's that's what will matter there so i think yeah. that there's some wisdom in that yeah. right okay no i appreciate you said that because that's one of the things that i've seen is especially when we look at in-service training where we got our officers coming back repeatedly is I remember so many times where officers, they're already in such a negative state and, and in an anxiety state coming back to training because they're thinking about how badly they were crushed, not physically, but mm -hmm. like emotionally, psychologically yep. during the last training event. And this is the last place they want to be. And, I'm, and I can't help but think that the trainers have a huge role in, in not allowing that uh, to happen as much as we can. Yeah, so I think just viewing it from a viewing it from a challenge point framework in that specific, you know, eight hour window or in that window, you know, you could scale the difficulty and the specificity so that they there is going to be some learning effect or learning potential there. And then towards the end, you could scale it back a little bit or at least the difficulty back a little bit 
to be a little more motivating um, or fun um, and yeah, and, and leave them, leave them thirsty for more. Right. Right. Exactly. So, okay. We got about 10 minutes left. Uh, Logan, that was an awesome introduction to the challenge point framework. And I would want to come back. I know there was a lot of questions left on the table to your point of not saying everything that we could say, uh, be good to have another conversation about that. But what I'd like to do in our remaining time is I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here because I, I went through your Instagram profile and I found you do a great job. And by the way, for our listeners, I'd highly recommend that you follow Logan on Instagram. He regularly puts out very insightful posts and some that are somewhat, at least for me, provocative from a motor learning perspective. And so what I want to do, Logan, is I'm just going to throw out some of your posts back to you and okay. allow you an opportunity to expand on each one. Like, what did you mean by this? Uh, because okay. some of them, some of them are, are pretty counterintuitive. So, okay. all right. Are you ready? Uh, I'll do my best. Okay. All right. So here's one. You said specificity is one of the most well-known concepts, but likely the least understood. It's typically viewed through a mechanical lens, utilizing similar movement patterns to increase specificity. This is important, but barely scratches the surface. Okay. Mm -hmm. Over to you. Yeah, I think, you know, at least, uh, I, I often think that specificity comes from uh, kind of like an exercise science or a strength and conditioning perspective. Um, I think that it's used a lot and people hear specificity and they think that the their practice should, like their physical movements should look like their physical movements do in the game. Um, or or maybe they should be training with the same loads. And so it's very much through a biomechanical lens or a technique lens even. Um, but the, I think that leaves out so much of the psychological element that is occurring um, or the, um, you know, to put it in another way, like the perception action coupling um, in the, in, in the game or in the, in the real world environment that's taking place. And so you know, that does not account for things like the emotional state. If there, if you have to perform under pressure or under anxiety, um, how, you know, or in a big area of fans or under time constraints or, um, you know, under multiple sources of information coming at you, um, that doesn't, that doesn't account for any of those things. And if you are not doing those things, though you have the mechanical aspects down completely, you will not be successful come to the real thing. Those things matter so much um, because, I mean, that's, it will, yes, it will, it will cripple somebody um, and greatly hinder their transfer um, to the real environment. And so I think that, yeah, just lacking those things, only focusing on the biomechanical lens um, is, um, yeah, greatly minimizes the effect of, of practice. Okay, awesome. That was uh, a great expansion on that. Okay, number two, uh, this is th these are your words. Perfecting technique can slow skill acquisition because it focuses on single movement solution technique to a movement problem goal. Skillful movers can generate multiple solutions to solve the problem. Variability is key. Yes, enough said. <laughs> 
you know, I, I like to think about, you know, when, when it comes to motor behavior or just movement, pro like when we're trying to accomplish a, a an action, it's a movement problem. And we're trying to, we're trying to utilize a movement solution to accomplish that movement problem. Um, and focusing on technique only, only is focusing on one single, the, the keyword there is one single movement solution. It does not allow you to practice multiple types of solutions, but in the real world, in an applied context, it's very unlikely that you're just going to be able to perform that one single solution to accomplish that goal. You may have to do it in a variety of ways. And so things like contextual interference, practice variability, um, and even from like a specificity viewpoint, if you're viewing it from specificity, it is not specific to only practice one single solution or one single technique to a movement problem, because never are you only going to have to be doing one single technique to that movement problem. Um, and so, yeah, practice multiple solutions, uh, because there's always more than one way to solve a problem, uh, and you should be practicing them. Okay. All right. Love it. All right. Next one. This one hit me uh, very, very much convicted me. You said bad instruction has a larger negative effect than good instruction has a positive effect. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, that, that I, you know, this, this stems from, this stems from a lot of the research looking at focus of attention. Um, and so I, I, I had done quite a bit of this um, early on in, in my research uh, path. And what we see here is, you know, traditionally it's looking at like an external focus of attention, which is focusing on the movement outcome or the effect that we want to have um, an internal focus, which is much more biomechanical um, or body movement oriented um, or a neutral focus, which is just do your best or you don't say anything. And what you see there is that typically like in general, the, 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 the evidence from that suggests that an external effect, an external focus is going to be greater than a neutral focus or an internal focus. And so when we focus on the movement effect, um, our performance and our learning can benefit from that. But when we focus on an internal uh, or when we focus internally or we provide instructions or feedback that elicit an internal focus to our trainees, uh, while not while there are some studies that may not show that an external is always better than a neutral focus or the control condition, those studies very often show that an internal is still has a negative impact relative to a neutral condition. And so oftentimes what we see is just not saying anything at all facilitates performance and learning better than saying the wrong things. Uh, and so for me, I, yeah, I, I, I stand by, uh, yeah, bad instruction has a larger negative effect than good instruction has a positive one, even though good instruction does have a positive effect. Uh, it just really, I'm trying to emphasize the negative effects of bad instruction. Sure. hundred percent. And just, just on that for our listeners, if uh, you've not read a book called the language of coaching by mm -hmm. Dr. Nick Winkleman, he talks extensively about what Logan just mentioned about how our language 
should be such that it keeps our learners in an external goal-oriented focus of attention rather than in an causing their attention to go internal. So that's the language of coaching by Dr. Nick Winkleman. Okay, Logan, a couple more. Um, you you like to do these myth bust Mondays, myth bust Mondays. And so uh, I'm going to give you a couple of these. The first one is uh, you so myth bust, myth bust Monday, the 10,000 hour rule. Now, come on, Logan. I read Outliers <laughs> by Malcolm Gladwell. And so I know I have to practice for 10,000 hours. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, didn't we all? Uh, the, uh, yeah. The, look, I, I, I like the idea of practice frequently uh, and practice a lot. Um, that's that's the good part of the book um, or the 10,000 hour rule. And, and I mean, for those that don't know, I, I think most know it's, you know, just 10,000 hours is the key to expertise or the key to attaining expertise, um, or it takes about 10,000 hours to attain expertise. Um, the problem with that is that so many people have 10,000 hours of, of a practice skill, and they're not good at all at that skill. Um, you know, and, and that's just the reality. Um, and my, my, my beef with that rule in and of itself is more of just the interpretation of the research that uh, that that rule stemmed from. And so Anders Ericsson um, was the researcher behind that. And really what that rule was, was one, he never intended for that to be a rule. He, he said that numerous times and has kind of called out that rule that this was, this was not the intention. The intention was how you practice, the quality of your practice matters. And it, it, you have to practice a lot but it's not about the quantity. It's all about the quality of hours that you spend practicing. Um, and the rule was made because that was the average that it took. Many of these individuals, they were musicians um, that, uh, that Anders Ericsson had examined. Um, but some of them it had, they had 40,000 hours of practice. Um, some of them were only at like 5,000, some were at 15,000 hours. And so it was just, the average that they were looking at is that's how long it took them. The other big thing is that these were just self-reported numbers. And so, uh, and, and that's Anders Ericsson called that out in his own research saying that like, yeah, like we, we take these with a grain of salt because these are just, they were retrospective self-reported data. So it was just like how, you know, in a journal, how long, um, you know, were, were you typically practicing every day and let's total those up. And so, Yes, we should not be basing the 10,000 hour rule on any, it's it's not a scientific claim at all, even though that's that's what the claim was. Uh, practice well and effective. Um, and if you want to be really good at something, you're going to have to do that a lot. But the quality of practice matters most. That's a great takeaway right there. The quality, the conditions of training. All right, last one. Myth bust Monday. Confidence is the key to success. How nice. can that possibly be a myth? Yeah. So this one is just one because it's, uh, you know, I, I see it in, uh, well, it's it's just the motivational quote that you'll see in social media or hanging up on the wall or uh, you know, in a large company. It's 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 uh, uh, it's 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 on the wall there. Uh, but, you know, if we look at the data, uh, there's there's a handful of studies. Some of them were actually tested using the contextual interference 
um, like paradigm, like using that. And, and I mentioned this earlier, and that is when we are really bad predictors of how well that we're improving, um, including how confident we are about our own improvements and our own current performance. And so what you see is when people practice uh, in with higher levels of contextual interference or practice difficult, um, they typically uh, are underestimating how well or 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 they're they're just going to be much less confident in how well that they're performing relative to people that are practicing just repetition after repetition in a very blocked manner. And so one is a poor practice design, but an easy practice design. And one is a more effective practice design, but a harder practice design. And what you see there is that the people in the easy, uh, less effective practice design are more confident about their future performance. Um, and, but they're not only more confident, but they're less accurate. Whereas the others will, they're, they're less confident compared to the others, but they're more accurate in their future performance. And so while they're not as confident about how they're going to perform tomorrow. They're more correct or they're more accurate about how they're going to perform tomorrow than the other guys. And so um, relying on confidence, um, it's it's just, yeah, it, it's not a predictor of future performance, uh, even though that's, uh, you know, that's not the 30 second Instagram clip that goes viral. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's not nearly as much money to be made there. Uh, but but that's just the reality. Right. Well, no, and I do so appreciate your Instagram posts and because it, it, I'm sure, and I'm not the only one, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands who read your posts and, and your comments cause us to really reflect and dig deeper and, and look at the research. And so we're so appreciative of that because that's what we should all be doing is what does the research say and what's the best approach to to make our training and our coaching better. So uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Logan Markwell. Logan, thanks for making the time to talk to us on the trainer's bullpen today. If our listeners want to reach out to you, if they've got follow-up questions, is there uh, a way that uh, you would want them to be able to contact you, Logan? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like you mentioned, um, I'm, I haven't been that active on Instagram over the last month or so, but I, I, I will be, um, Logan Markwell, PhD is that is uh, is that account, and so you can reach me there and message me there. Um, but also, you can email me at uh, Logan Markwell ninety five at gmail um, is a good is a good email to reach me. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm not active on LinkedIn, but I will. I do look at messages uh, and uh, like things from time to time, so you can uh, reach me there as well. Um, but but I, I appreciate you having me on, and this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and always, you know, if, if, uh, if it's about motor behavior, motor learning, I'm interested. And, uh, this, this kind of stuff gets me fired up. And so, uh, anytime I'd love to love to chat again. Awesome. We'll take you up on that offer. All right. Logan, well, Logan Markwell, thanks very much. We'll talk to you Thank soon. You. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Trainer's Bullpen. As always, our encouragement to you is that you would think critically and deeply about the critical aspects of this interview and how you can advance your training to make your students more effective performers and more adaptive decision makers. As a reminder, all the research reports or articles mentioned in the podcast are made available to you 
at the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.com. Did you know that you can also subscribe to the Bullpen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? And we encourage you to subscribe so you get alerts about new episode drops. Thank you for your dedication and for your commitment to officer and public safety.